0: It's once again an honor and a privilege to bring God's word this morning. We'll be reading the book of Jude together. Yes, the entire book of Jude. So you can go home and say that you've read a book of the Bible. You've finished the book of the Bible uh, today. And I'm feeling a bit ambitious, so for your sake, I will not ask you to stand, but instead remain seated and listen attentively out of respect for the speaker who is God. I am just the reader. This is the reading of God's word, Jude, 1 through 25. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain in Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reeves at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It is these who have caused divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever amen this is the reading of God's Word please join me in a word of prayer Holy Spirit would you enlighten the text for us? Make the book live for us, Lord. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand your holy and living word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You might be asking yourself, why the book of Jude? It's somewhat of an obscure book, even for Christians. I could probably count the number of times I've heard it preached from the pulpit on one hand. It's brief. 25 verses all in all, the third shortest in the New Testament, but it contains within it a beautiful promise for God's people. As a fair warning, if you are familiar with the book of Jude, I'm going to come right out and say that there's a lot of stuff that I could talk about concerning the book, but I have to resist doing so for the sake of time and to get to the main point, the meaning of the text. I'm not going to address the debate and discussion of The author's references or the similarities to other books in the Bible. And I'm especially not going to tie in lyrics from the popular Beatles song, Hey Jude. (laughs) I love the Beatles, I love the song, but uh, not today. Today, we're going to focus on the main things, the plain things, and try not to lose the forest for the trees. And we'll do that by focusing on this one central idea summed up in this one-sentence summary. Because Christ secures our salvation, we can confidently present real hope to others with the mercy, peace, and love of our Savior. I'll say that again. Because Christ secures our salvation, we can confidently present real hope to others with the mercy, peace, and love of our Savior. And we'll get to that idea with three main points. First, the punishment of the ungodly. The punishment of the ungodly. Second, protection of salvation. Protection of salvation. And third, purpose for God's people. Purpose for God's people. Punishment, protection, and purpose. Point one. The punishment of the ungodly. And as another warning, we're going to be front-loading this first point, so try to stick with me as we go through this. Uh, It'll be worthwhile at the end. Let's begin by briefly addressing the original context of the letter of Jude and try to get to the main gist of what he is saying. This is essentially the background, the who, what, when, where, and why. And the goal in doing this is to ultimately try and answer the question of Why this matters to us today. Verse 1 Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. The author here identifies himself by his calling, a servant of Jesus Christ, and by birth, the brother of James. Traditionally, Jude is the shortened form of the name Judas, as in Judas, the brother of Jesus, not to be confused with Judas Iscariot. If he is indeed the earthly brother of Jesus, then the Bible makes mention of him in other places. Three of the gospel accounts record that during Jesus' earthly ministry, his family, his own brothers, did not believe in him. But later, his brother James was converted and became a leader in the early church at Jerusalem. He is traditionally recognized to be the author of the book of James in the New Testament. So James's prominence in the early church is probably the reason why the author of this book identifies himself as the brother of James and not the brother of Jesus. And now for the audience. To whom is Jude writing? Verse 1 says that it's addressed to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. There's no specific church addressed in this letter. Instead, there's this general address to all who believe, and we'll come back to this later. Considering the lifetime of Jude, this would date this letter to about the mid to late first century. And we can assume that since this is still the early church, it could include any place where the church is present at this time, with Jerusalem as sort of the, the epicenter this letter was undoubtedly circulated among the early churches. By the beginning of the second century, it's well-known fairly early on. And now we get to the meat, the content. Why was this letter written? And ultimately, why does it matter for us today? In verse 3, Jude admits that he was excited to be writing concerning the common salvation of the saints, but due to particular circumstances, felt it necessary to contend for the faith. He goes on in verse four to reveal the main issue. There are certain ungodly people who have crept into the church unnoticed. And for the next 15 verses, he describes exactly what it is that threatens the church. In verses five through seven, Jude reminds us of the judgment of the ungodly. When God in human history saved the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, but then he would later destroy some of them due to their unbelief. Note that he's not only talking about the Egyptians that were swallowed up by the sea, but also those Israelites who were saved by the hand of God and yet still did not believe and obey. Likewise, he goes on to speak of fallen angels in eternity who were once in the very presence of God in heaven but then have since deserted their position and now are kept in eternal chains for their final judgment. These ungodly people, these ungodly beings suffer the same kind of judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah for their sexual immorality and desires of the flesh. They have all committed ungodly acts. They are ungodly ones who are reserved for destruction. And the ungodly ones now, just as they, are, they were then, verses 8 and 9 say, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme. And they presume to have the authority of God himself. Verse 10 says, like animals acting on instinct, they act upon their sinful nature and desires. Are there certain kinds of people that come to mind when you reflect on this warning? People who are so selfish, conniving, prideful, and manipulative that you pray that they get what's coming to them. I attended a church with a woman who had been duped by a prosperity gospel preacher. She had drained her entire savings, all her accounts, including her children's college fund, everything that she had, tens of thousands of dollars, because this preacher told her that if she gave her money to the church, God would bless her in return 100 fold. Unsurprisingly, her family was left devastated. And what makes it so bad is that this woman put her trust in the promise of this preacher who was supposed to be giving the promises of God. He took advantage of her faith and her trust and she suffered for it and he did not. Thinking about stories like this makes my my blood boil. But people like this have infiltrated the church. According to the apostles, this has been going on for as long as the church has has existed, and actually even longer. Jude appeals to some of the Old Testament examples to further reveal the likes of the ungodly. Cain was the second generation of the seed of the serpent in Genesis, who killed his brother in jealous rage, showing no respect for the image of God that was imprinted upon all humanity Balaam was a prophet that led the people of God astray for his own personal gain. And Korah was an Israelite, one of those mentioned before, who was saved out of the land of Egypt, yet rejected God's authority given to Moses and rebelled against him. These three people are classic examples of the disastrous effects of jealousy, greed, and pride. There are spiritual ancestors of all the ungodly ones who would lead astray, manipulate, extort, and abuse the people of God. They've infiltrated their way into the church like professional spies, like saboteurs. Then the author waxes poetic in the verses 12 and 13, giving these very vivid natural metaphors of those who feast among us, shepherds that feed themselves and not their sheep, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves that collapse upon themselves, and wandering stars that are destined for gloomy darkness. All these things are reserved for destruction, and they're taking everyone out with them like an infection or a disease where the prognosis is a 100% mortality rate. They are the very personification of sin and death itself. In your mind, you might be thinking the worst of the worst kind of people, murderers, rapists, child molesters, sex traffickers, and abusers, enemies of God who are absolutely unforgivable. But here's the kicker. Here's the part that throws me for a loop. Listen closely to verses 14 and 16, which is a prophecy of judgment. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. Tell me what you really think, right? It continues in verses 18 and 19. Scoffers following their own ungodly passions, and those who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. I don't know about you, but this strikes fear into my heart. Up until this point, I was convinced that these ungodly people were just pure evil. Enemies that God uses to cause suffering on his people. So that they would pray to him and that God would come and take them out just like he did the Egyptians. But as I thought about this more and more, I started to second guess myself. Deeds of ungodliness committed in such ungodly ways. Grumbling, malcontent, following their sinful desires. At this point, I was convicted because I knew that this could be me. If God were to really examine my life, and especially my mind and my heart, this could very easily be me. It's almost like looking into a mirror. You know what, I'll do you one better. This wouldn't be a res press sermon without an illustration from Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis, Harry Potter, or Star Wars. And I've kind of been on a Star Wars kick lately, so that's my way of saying I should probably be doing more reading. Um, but anyway, <laughs> here it is. It's like that scene from The Empire Strikes Back in the cave at Dagobah where Luke Skywalker confronts the dark side, and he hallucinates getting into this lightsaber battle with his worst enemy, Darth Vader. The two engage in this dramatic battle, and it ends with Luke decapitating Darth Vader. And as he stares on at the head on the ground, the mask like randomly blows up, bursts open, and he reveals his own face underneath the mask. This is supposed to represent that great inner fear of being seduced by the dark side and becoming the very thing that he hates. It's like that. Being shown your own sin and truly, truly fearing the Lord's holy and righteous judgment. How do I know that I'm on the right side of the final judgment? How am I any different than these ungodly ones? What do I have to offer to plead my case before our almighty God? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. This finally brings us to our second point. Thanks for sticking out through the first point with me. I promise that points two and three are shorter and much, much sweeter. Point two, protection of salvation. The majority of the letter up until this point has been doom and gloom, as we've seen, for those who are designated for condemnation, for the ungodly ones, But if you're paying attention to the gospel assurance that Rob read today at Romans 5, you may have picked up on the wording, which is the most scandalous thing about the gospel. Romans 5, 6, and 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly, for the worst of the worst, for murderers, rapists, abusers, and the like. And from his life and sacrifice flows not only the saving power, but also the power and promise of protection. Let's turn our attention all the way back to verse 1 and the address to the audience to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. There's something really beautiful about this address, because it invokes all three persons of the Trinity. To those who are called, which implies the work of the Holy Spirit, they are also beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ the Son. Verses 20 and 21, which is the big turnaround in the letter, pick these concepts back off that were left off in verse 1. And it makes this great promise which everything has been building towards. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. This stands in contrast to verse 19, where it says the ungodly ones are devoid of spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, the verb to keep could carry many different meanings, but also included something along the lines of preserving and protecting. In Genesis 2, it says that the Lord God put man in the garden to work it and to keep it. And so Adam's role was not only to care for the garden, but also to protect and guard it from intruders. In the New Testament, the verb to keep can carry the same kind of meaning. And to be kept it's to be kept from harm, protected, preserved. These verses, verse 1, 20, and 21 they get at this beautiful doctrine that we call the preservation of the saints or the perseverance of the saints. It's said both ways, but really it describes the same kind of relationship between us and Christ, which is basically this. Christ protects us. He protects our salvation. Once we are saved, we are always saved because of him. The verb kept in verse 1 describes being kept for Jesus Christ. It's passive, just like the idea of preservation, right? Christ preserves us. We don't do anything. He preserves us. In verse 21, it's an active imperative. Do this. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, how does one keep themselves in the love of God? The answer comes in the second part of the verse. By waiting For the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. What does a soldier do when he receives orders to keep his post? He guards it against the enemy, waiting and anticipating for their relief and news of victory from the battlefield. This idea is tied to our term, the gospel. The term gospel or good news carries the idea of a messenger running into the city and declaring the victory of the battlefield. This is what happens when the gospel is preached. So whether it's preservation, being kept, or perseverance, keeping, both of these are accomplished by the work of Christ. And it's not our own efforts and strength, but his. Praise God for that. Christ is our shield, our protection, our refuge, and our shelter. He guards our salvation. For the ungodly ones, he is the judge who punishes and destroys. But for his loved ones, for us, he takes the punishment that we deserve and constantly intercedes to us for the Father, to us. He intercedes to the Father for us on our behalf. He shows us mercy when life is tough by strengthening our faith and he will sustain us to eternal life. That's the gospel for real life, brothers and sisters. If you're against something difficult, if you're backed into a corner and there doesn't seem to be any hope for you, turn around and look to your salvation, who is Christ. He's got your back. How confident is the cub when it's in the presence of the mother bear or the hatchling that's covered beneath the eagle's wings? So, too, can we walk with confidence in Christ. And this brings us to our third and final point. The purpose for the people of God the purpose for the people of God, knowing that Christ has our back, that he protects us, and that our salvation is secure, what then are we called to do? Verses 22 through 23 are our application, and everything that we've heard so far weighs in on this. It's threefold. First, have mercy on those who doubt. Yes and amen. There are times in every Christian's walk when we doubt. It is inevitable. We are weak and forgetful people, which is why one of the central themes of Scripture, including the book of Jude, is to remember. Remember when Jesus brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, out of the clutches of sin and death. Remember your salvation. If someone among you doubts, remind them gently kindly, mercifully. I was reminded of this in our community group a few weeks back. If a person is seriously struggling, doubting their salvation, and doubting God's goodness, do not simply tell them that they need more faith. Remind them of the one in whom they place their faith in. Encourage them with prayer, hospitality, and with love. Second, And similarly, for unbelievers, save them by snatching them out of the fire. We proclaim the gospel into their lives through word and deed. Not one or the other, but both. Word accompanied by deed. Tend to their immediate physical needs if they have any. Pray to the Lord that he provides for their spiritual need, their thirst and their hunger, and their longing for him. And do not neglect the power of prayer. Jude reminds us that we have the Holy Spirit and that he helps us to pray. He gives us words to our feelings and he presents them perfectly before the Father in heaven. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and the giver of life and spirit-filled Life-filled prayers ought to accompany our gospel proclamations. And third, with regard to all people, show mercy with fear. Hating even the garment stained by flesh. This means that regardless of where we think certain people are going to end up, we must be merciful as we have been shown mercy. Rob shared with us this weekend some examples of people who would never believe would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Can you think of a few people like that, a few stories in your life? People who are the worst of the worst. This reflection in Jude should remind us that we on our own are no different than the ungodly ones without Jesus to stand in our place, we would be condemned under the law and God would be right to destroy us in his righteous judgment. This should humble us, brothers and sisters, and call us to deal with others with the same mercy of our Savior. And yet also, we are called to despise all ungodliness and sin, For we are people who are bought with a price, a perfect and sinless life, a life that was snuffed out for a moment and brought back to keep us for eternity. In conclusion, ungodliness challenges us, even within the church, even within the life of the Christian, tempting us to believe in something other than what is true. But Christ, who both judges and saves, protects us, his people, from the condemnation of the ungodly. And he secures our salvation. And because our salvation is secure, we are called to have mercy on those who doubt, present the gospel in word and deed, and despise ungodliness and sin. In other words, because Christ secures our salvation, we can confidently present real hope to others with the mercy, peace, and love of our Savior. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for saving us from the judgment of the ungodly We thank you, Lord, because we are not worthy. We could not do it on our own, but you sent your Son, Lord, to purchase us as his people, to lead us out of sin and death and misery. And even now, he protects us and shields us. Lord, what a beautiful message. Would you give us your love, your peace, your mercy so that we can proclaim the good news to others in word and deed. And we end today, Lord, with the closing doxology of Jude. To me, it's one of the most beautiful doxologies in all of scripture. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling,